Today on Maine Calling, Maine's seal population. Many of us have a soft spot for seals with their cute, whiskery faces, round eyes, and penchant for popping up near a ferry or sunning on rocks with their pod. Once nearly extinct, Maine's seal population has grown steadily over the decades. But last year, dozens of seals were found dead along Maine's coast, apparently from avian flu. And sharks seem to be attacking more seals than before. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on Maine Calling, we learn about the state of Maine seals. We'll find out how the now famous wayward seal rescued in Cape Elizabeth is doing. We'll learn about research into seal genomics and history. And our experts will have guidance about what to do if you spot an injured seal. Maine Calling is just ahead. Maine Calling On Demand is made possible by listeners and by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. And by Welch and Forbes, working with clients to manage the full range of events that come with building wealth, from investments to trustee services. More welchforbes.com. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling. They are as much a part of Maine as the rocky shoreline. Seals. But how are they doing here? We'll find out today on Maine Calling. Joining me, Linda Dowdy, who is a marine scientist and founding executive director of Marine Mammals of Maine. Christine Kamen, an assistant professor in the School of Marine Sciences at the University of Maine. And Rosemary Seaton. Marine Mammal Stranding Coordinator with the Allied Whale Marine Research Program at the College of the Atlantic. We invite you to join the conversation. What are your questions about seals? Send a brief email to talk at mainepublic.org. Post a comment on social media or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. So much to get to. I can't wait to hear about the work that you all do and about the research. But let's start with the big picture. And I'll start with you, Christina. How is Maine's seal population doing? Do we know? We know some, Jennifer. Well, first, thank you for inviting me to be here. I'm really excited to have this chance to chat with, with you and Linda and Rosemary um, on a topic that's near and dear to my heart. So we we know that uh, seals are doing you know, fairly well here in Maine. We have an interesting history that's had some periods with low seal abundance, and we can, we can chat about that. Um, but over the last few decades, what we've seen is general recovery and growing seal populations, particularly for our harbor seals and our gray seals, which would be the seals that, that our listeners would most commonly see on the coast of Maine today. All right. And Linda, we know that last summer, it was a little scary. People kept finding dead seals. Well, we know now what was going on. You've done some research on it. Tell us what happened last summer. Yeah, so we started to see calls coming into our hotline for birds, which is usually a marine mammal reporting hotline, and people were experiencing birds that were that they were seeing that were either acting odd behavior or dead on beaches, and that kind of tipped us off that there was some influenza, um, high path avian influenza going on, and then 
we started to see really good condition dead seals starting to show up and live animals that were starting to go neurologic. And we started to test immediately for avian influenza and especially high path. And so we work with Tufts on carrying out the analysis for that. And they you know, could tell us within 24 hours that the seals that we were swabbing for these um, for this was coming detecting for positive for high path avian influenza. So that was a new um, thing for seals um, in the whole U.S. Um, Canada had started to experience it, but I don't think they knew at the time that it was happening just because of the uh, testing. But <clears throat> uh, it started to get scary how far reach that was going to be with um, the migration of birds. Mm. And, and Rosemary Seaton, were you seeing the same? And I, I should make clear that, Linda, for the most part, yeah. your rescues are um, sort of in the southeast part of the state. And Rosemary, you are from mid-coast to down-east, correct? Yeah, we look after Rockland north up to Canada, so getting into the down-east area. And we're based in Bar Harbor at the college. Um, we don't get the volume of reports that Linda does. Sorry, Linda. Um, <laughs> and Southern Maine, uh, population is bigger down south. And while we get the hordes coming to Acadia National Park, it's still um, more remote, more isolated and rocky coastline and so on. But having said that, um, we I noticed a shift in that we usually get our nice little live harbor seal pops at the end of April, uh, so, yeah, end of May into June. And then we get sort of the weanling pops at the end of June and perhaps not doing so well. And then we start to get dead seals, both adult and pops later on. But I noticed it just went from the live pops to early June getting dead seals. And as Linda noted, in good body condition and not necessarily pops. These were adults or subadults. Um, so while not the volume is Southern Maine, we, we did see that little uh, pick me up there of, of dead yeah. seal. And overall, I'm, I'm sorry to step on you. And overall, yeah. um, I read 160 or is that even more all year last year? How many? Um, seal deaths were attributed to the avian flu, do we know? Linda, you probably have a better take on that. Yeah, as of this point, we're at a 328 uh, total animals. And so, yeah, <laughs> it was busy. And Christina, what is that out of? I know we don't know have an exact number, but 328 out of 10,000, 50,000, 100,000, how many seals are believed to be inhabiting the waters off the coast of Maine? Well, what I can tell you are the numbers that we get from NOAA, which is the federal agency responsible for managing marine mammals and assessing their population size on a regular basis. Um, the most recent numbers say that we have about 60,000 harbor seals in U.S. waters. And during the summer months, uh, their, their breeding season, most of those harbor seals are going to be here in Maine. Uh, the gray seals, uh, we have about 27,000 of the U.S. population. But interestingly, with gray seals, uh, during different times of the year, we also see a lot of seals coming down from Canada. So that number could be larger at any point in time. And so, Linda, maybe you could clarify with your number there, which of those are, are grays versus harbors? Yeah, so primarily those are harbor seal numbers that we were seeing in that for the avian, the high path avian influenza. And a small amount is gray seals, which kind of fits with the population size comparison as well. Well, calling us now is Scott Smart, who is Parks Foreman for the town of Cape Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation, Scott. Oh, thanks for having me. 
Now, I wanted you to call in because I want to hear about your experience during that big snowstorm on January 23rd. I take it you were out plowing very early in the morning. What happened? So I was coming down uh, Oakhurst Road, and uh, we had been up for a long time. And, you know, when you're up that long, your mind does tend to play tricks on you. And I saw this black object on the side of the road, and I just thought it might be, you know, a piece of turf or something. And then I saw it moving. So then I said, I thought it was probably an animal that was injured, but when I got closer, I realized it was a seal. Um, I I radioed to my supervisor who was going to call the police just to have them come down, but I wanted to stay with it uh, just so it wouldn't get run over. Um, so it kept, like I, you know, it kept following my lights. So I, I would move to the right of the road. It would move to the right of the road. I'd move to the left. It would move to the left. And uh, I just stayed with it. It, it, he was, or he or she, I don't, I'm not sure, uh, was pretty tired, um, going the wrong direction. (laughs) (laughs) And after, after the police came to get it, they put it back in the ocean, but that was not the end of the story, was it? No, it it apparently got out again, and again, and again. <laughs> found and the end of the story is that it it went into another Cape Elizabeth neighborhood, and the third time found in Fort Williams Park, which is actually right on the water. But this seal was really making some, um, you know, doing some mileage here. Um, Scott, is this the first time you've helped rescue a seal? It it is actually not. Um, about three years ago, there was a seal on the beach at Fort Williams that had uh, looked like it had been hit by a prop and um, had a had a pretty good sized gash in it. And we called uh, the um, Maine mammal, marine mammal, and I helped the the gentleman get it into a dog doggy cage, and he took it away. And I'm not sure if that seal made it or not. Well, well, you've got. I've, while you're on the phone, Scott, I'm going to go back to Linda Dowdy. Um, Linda, the seal that was rescued in Cape Elizabeth on January 23rd. Um, I posted a picture on Facebook. You all still have that seal pup. It's a he, correct? Yes, and thank you, Scott, so much. <laughs> How is he doing? Good. He's doing really well, and he's gaining weight, which is nice. And he's eating fish on his own. And I think part of what his issue was he was searching for trying to find fish and so it took a little kind of learning him teaching him a little bit but he's gaining well and doing well and doing better every day. Linda I was going to ask you what you think was going on Um, you said he was searching for fish obviously doing it the wrong way not going to find it in neighborhoods of Cape Elizabeth do you think it's because of the snow that he was disoriented and and you know it wasn't as though he was moving around over grass and rocks he was moving over snow. (laughs) Yeah, so these young, especially young animals, and he's newly um, on his own from being newly weaned from mom. And so they tend to get a little bit more wayward during that time period. And so it's not uncommon that we find some of these youngsters out and about in places that they really shouldn't be. (laughs) And so gets into a little bit more trouble. Scott, before we let you go, I just want to ask if generally... Uh, the Public Works Department in Cape Elizabeth is being called more often about SEALs than it was in the past. Are, are you seeing more SEALs? 
so, like, I don't know how many years ago it was. We we unfortunately had like eight or nine calls of dead seals that had washed up on the beach, and we would we would go and and take care of the ones that we could get to. And that was last year. Uh, it was either last year or maybe two or three years ago. There were there were several calls mm-hmm. on on that year. Usually it's one, maybe two, but that year was was a little bit more than normal. Linda, do you know what was going on? So that was in 2018, and thank you, Scott, for being there to help us because that was the year we had the outbreak of focine distemper virus in uh, steels where we had over a thousand animals that showed up deceased along our coastline in a short amount of time. Wow. Well, Scott, thanks so much for calling in and what an experience. Scott Smart, the parks foreman in Cape Elizabeth and seal rescuer. Um, uh, Christina, as you listen to this and we're, we're talking about avian flu and, and Linda's talking about um, what happened in 2018 it sort of sounds like seals are vulnerable. Yeah, it, it's an interesting model, right? Because when you asked me at the beginning what how seals were doing, I said they were doing well. And generally at a population scale, they are. But they, they're, they're facing certain threats and disease is maybe the one that um, we see most visibly in these outbreak events. I mean, my anecdote from 2018 is I was walking with my at the time, um, two and a half year old daughter and my father-in-law down a beach, Reed State Park in Maine, where we go often. And on a single walk that morning, I think we were one of the first people on the beach because a two and a half year old wakes up very early, um, even during summer break, we saw three dead seals. And I picked up the phone, each has called the hotline. Hey, Linda, this is you, I'm finding this. And then two minutes later, uh, Linda, I got one more. And two minutes later, uh, Linda. <laughs> so, so it was, very present, very visible when you have these outbreaks. And this, you know, it's a natural part of wildlife and, and human systems, right? We we see flu outbreaks every year. We've been very, very familiar with it over the last few years, unfortunately, with the COVID pandemic. And so when the population becomes large enough, they'll, these outbreaks will begin to happen. Um, what you think you've already heard is that they're impacting harbor seals more than gray seals. So there's even a difference within the seals that we have in Maine in terms of how susceptible they are. Um, and we, we don't necessarily have all the answers there yet as to why that is, but it's something that there are, um, my lab and several others in the region um, facilitated by Linda and Rosemary's teams doing active work in that area. It sounds to me, Christina, you're talking about the more seals we have, the more likely we're gonna see seals that are dead on the shore because they've ca- caught something when we've done programs about sharks, we've learned we're seeing more sharks because we have more seals, that in a way it is a testament to how effective the Marine Mammal Act was and that we have seals coming back. So um, it it sounds sort of counterintuitive, but some of these things are a good problem to have. I mean, I, I would like to think that these are signals of a healthy ecosystem that's rebounding. And in terms of both sharks and disease or predators and disease, these are going to be natural population controls in a, in a healthy ecosystem. So yes, um, it's an interesting way to put it, but, but yeah, maybe it's it's a good a signal of a good problem to have. I, yeah, I, I don't know. That's It's a tricky one. Rosemary yeah. Seton, um, Christina Kamen mentioned that she is a biologist, 
a researcher, a professor at the University of Maine, yet when she found SEAL, she called the local marine mammal rescue organization. So she has really answered our question, but I'm going to put it to you formally. What should somebody do if they come across an injured or dying SEAL? Uh, whether you're in northern Maine or southern Maine or wherever you are in the States, um, always good if you see a marine mammal, alive or dead, is to your stranding agency and if you don't know where that is or uh who that is um you can phone the police you can phone NOAA fisheries and they'll relay that information on to us and in fact linda and i are always trading reports back and forth when she gets reports for my region up north one another and pass on those reports but it's always important to just leave that animal uh and especially with high path even influenza a few found a dead deal, you really don't want to be handling that animal. If it's alive, same thing goes. And also, if you have a pet with you, make sure they're on a leash and have them. Don't let it get near uh, the the marine mammal, whether it's a seal, uh, live or dead. Um, uh, so really important just to get in touch with your training agency. All right. Well, we're going to take audience questions after the break. We are also going to ask you about some of the research that you're doing. Um, but we do need to take a break. Our phone number 1-800-399-3566. You can send a brief email to public. Find us on social media. We'll be right back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Our topic today, SEALs in Maine, understanding their behavior, learning more about their history and how to help protect them. With me, Christine Kamen, who is an assistant professor at UMaine School of Marine Sciences, Rosemary Seton, Marine Mammal Stranding Coordinator with the College of Atlantic's Allied Whale Marine Research Program, and Linda Dowdy, Marine Scientist and Executive Director of Marine Mammals of Maine. Share your comments and questions. Send an email to talk at mainepublic.org, comment on social media, or give us a call at one 800 399 Six, six. Christina, tell me about some of the research you're doing. I understand that you are looking back at um, seals that lived hundreds of years ago in Maine and comparing them to seals today. What are you learning? How are you doing that? And what are you learning? Yeah, it's been a really exciting project. And it was motivated in part by, as we've talked about the seal populations growing today and this question of how many seals are there now versus how many were there in the past. It's not an easy question to answer. And I don't, you know, um, spoiler alert, I don't have an exact number. It's not something that we can get. But um, I was excited by this research because I took a, a few different approaches to it. I'm a geneticist by training. So in part, I used um, my molecular lab and was able to get access to archaeological specimens and actually extract DNA from those specimens. And so that was one approach I did. And I got to combine um efforts with archaeologists at the University of Maine who've been uncovering uh, Native American middens along our coast and, and uh, leveraging the knowledge that they have of the history of the people of Maine and um, their relationship with marine resources, including seals. So we actually took, um, with permission and collaboration with the, the tribal uh, groups, um, seal bones. They were ear bones from seals that had been preserved over hundreds of years. And we were able to extract their DNA and compare that to the DNA of seals today. And what that shows us is that the seal populations were really diverse genetically, meaning they were probably very large. And that maybe even their 
might have been um, a, a distinct population or subpopulation of gray seals that lived here in Maine at that time. And then I merged so, that. So when you say a distinct population, do you mean a population that no longer exists? So we can't know for sure, but the genetics suggests that the gray seal, um, gray seals from those archaeological specimens had different genetic types um, in large part than the seals that exist today. And we know that uh, seals, gray seals in particular, were extirpated from U.S. waters as a result of bounty programs that were in place in the 1800s, the early 1900s. So maybe we lost some um, unique genetic diversity of the gray seal population through that process. And as the seal population has recovered, gray seals are here again. A lot of what we're seeing is movement of Canadian source populations down into U.S. waters that are reseeding, recolonizing areas that were historically inhabited. Linda, I understand, speaking of gray seals, I understand that your organization has begun tagging them. Tell me how that, how long you've been doing that and what you hope to find. Uh, we've been working on that for a little under 10 years now. Um, and we do it in collaboration with the Northeast Fishery Science Center. So we, I have a co-investigator permit under their marine mammal population permit. And so that gives us the activities to be able to special permit to do this and and look at uh, these younger animals and what their distribution is, how that's changing over time, how far they go, what are their habitat usage through that satellite tagging process. And these animals, it's affixing epoxia tag to looks like a little cell phone almost on the back of a seal. And when they molt in a year, they'll end up shedding that uh, off so it's not something that is permanently on them but it gives us a snapshot because the battery life usually will run out before all the data that we would love to have but um, we get a good snapshot of what these animals are doing over time and having a baseline data set. What have you learned and has there been anything that surprised you? Yeah, it's amazing to see how how far these animals will reach and areas that they go to. So a lot of people will always ask me, hey, am I seeing the same seals on these hollow rocks like every day? And be like, actually, you might be seeing different animals because they're moving so much. So not necessarily the same seal you saw today is the same seal you'll see tomorrow because they're moving so much in the U.S. Atlantic. Oh, that's interesting. We're going to go to Thomas, who's calling from Yarmouth. Hi, Thomas. Go ahead. Howdy. Um, thank you so much for doing the show. Um, we're, uh, my family, we're, we're oyster farmers, and we get visits from the seals all the time. They'll, you'll feel something, turn around, and there'll be a seal watching us. It's kind of fun. Um, but my question is actually about um, our behavior around the seals. So we do tours of our farm, and we go on the farm and eat oysters, and it's great fun. But many of our customers are from the Midwest, and uh, our oyster tour quickly turns into a seal tour when there are seals around because people just lose their minds when they see them. They have a great time. My question for you, though, is, um, you know, our, our, our policy for our tours is we, feel, we don't change the behavior of the seals. So we want to go up to the rocks where the seals are hauled out and we want to see them close. But we understand that the, the, the right thing to do is to not be so close that they get back in the water, that they change their behavior. Is there anything else we should know about our conduct with regards to the SEALs? Any advice is what you're looking for. Um, it sounds like a lot of fun, Thomas. 
Uh, Rosemary, any thoughts about um, Thomas's tour and and seals and seal behavior and and giving them their space versus letting people have their fill? Well, it sounds like Tom's got the right idea of giving the seals their space. Um, and it it may be novel and wonderful. And boy, you just want to go up to that seal and give it a pat. Um, but that really stresses it out. And yeah, as Tom noted, if you get up too close, you cross that sort of invisible line and they will flush into the water and then you won't have any seals. So uh, maybe having binoculars with you, zoom lenses for photos, um, but keeping in mind that, you know, you don't want to stress the seals out and you'll just lose them all together if you get any closer. Any other thoughts? We from try to my other... just by with the current or the wind and um, we find if we stay, I don't know, I guess a hundred years away, they'll just, they'll just stay there and it seems to be the best, the best thing. Well, thank you so much. Also, sorry, ahead, I just... Add about in our area. I'm not sure about southern Maine, but we get a lot of kayakers, and uh, it's sometimes been I get complaints from locals who say, "Oh, the kayaking companies are kayakers are getting too close to uh, sea fallouts, which we have numerous ones around here." Um, and so we have stickers, you know, asking kayakers always keep to 50 feet. Um, however, we also get seals lost kayakers. And uh, I've had reports from people saying a seal pop hauled out onto my kayak or our client. Kayak. I've had that a few times. Um, so it can go. <laughs> I was going to say it's so different. Seals have personalities. Some were stressed out by humans and others. Clearly, anybody who spent some time on a boat knows there are others that are really curious and want to come right up to you and see what you're up to and maybe even, as you mm -hmm. said, Rosemary, climb out on your kayaks. I'm wondering if one of you, and, and maybe you, Christina, can tell us about personality, very variations of personalities in different seals. Ooh, um, you know, I think I would I would deflect that question to Linda or Rosie, who, who spend their days with these seals, and I think you see those personalities in the individuals that, for example, come into the rehab center. Linda? Yeah, Linda can really speak to them, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, we have a few individuals in-house right now that are currently like that. <laughs> um, some are a lot, I mean, all are wild animals, but some are a little bit more vocal or have a little bit more personality than others. And some are just still very timid of, of what we're trying to do or who we are. So they do have, you know, as much as we talk about populations and overall, they do have their individual unique personalities and, and intricacies as well. Thomas, thank you so much for the call. Um, I'm gonna go to a couple emails here. This one's from Martha. I live in Pembroke, down east, on the Penamaquan River, which flows into Copscook Bay. We can see some ledges that appear during low tide. Seals regularly use this ledge to haul out and rest in spring, summer, and fall. In winter, there are none. Do they move to another area for the winter? And um, Christine, I think you sort of alluded to this earlier. Seals migrate. They do, and the different species have different migratory patterns, but in general, they're going to do the same thing that, um, that well, many of them will do the same thing that we might want to do in terms of go south in the winter and go uh, north during summer months. Our harbor seals are here in Maine year-round, 
but they do also, some of them head south for the winter and they can actually range as far south as North Carolina during fall and winter months. So that's interesting. Just like some bird species, some even within the same uh, species, some will stay and some will migrate. Yeah. Yeah, because we did have, as Scott just called, a seal pup wandering around in January in Maine. So obviously uh, that guy's family did not um, migrate. Here's an email from C. We live on an offshore island. For many years of the past, seals were taken for food, and some fishermen would shoot seals because they hauled their traps. Do your guests find this still takes place? The seal population <clears throat> is low around, high population around high numbers of lobster fishermen. Um, I'll, I'll go to you, Linda and Rosemary. Are you seeing seals that have been shot in your, uh, in your rescue organizations? Not, we haven't had any ballistic trauma in the last few years um, that I can think of. Linda, what about you? Yeah, we haven't, we've actually analyzed a lot of dead seals, especially with these UME outbreaks as well. And um, it's um, very minimal, uh, if any, um, on that front. Do you all hear complaints from fishermen of any kind that uh, seals are um, you know, either getting into the traps and stealing bait or, or getting in the way in other ways. I used to live in California and I know the fishermen did not like it because seals would gather on the mouth at the mouth of the river when the salmon were going to migrate. That was uh, a source of tension, shall we say. Um, do you hear about that? Yeah, I actually grew up in a fishing community and my other half is a fisherman as well. So I get to hear all sorts of things over the dinner table. Um, so there's a, a combination. I still hear that, and you know, maybe if they're coming in for their into their traps for bait. And I mean, these animals want to eat fish, so they're going to go where the fish are. I mean, that's their need for survival. So um, we do hear, hear some good stories <laughs> that fishermen have also said, but they're also one of the first ones that will call into our hotline if they see an animal that's not doing well. All right. Our phone yeah. number 1-800-399-3566. Again, 1-800-399-3566. You can send an email to talk at mainepublic.org or find us on social media. We're talking about Maine's seal population. Christina, we talked about harbor seals and gray seals. Are there other species here in Maine? Yeah, we. those are the only two species that breed here in Maine. Um, and that we can see year round, but we do also have harp and hooded seals who come uh, visit the Gulf of Maine. <laughs> those are both seals that breed in the Arctic. Wow, I would love to see one of those. Um, Linda, you're smiling. Have you ever rescued one? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, the harp seals and hoods, we haven't, we don't get to see as many hooded seals and their populations are lower than harp seals in general anyway, but um, they're uh, always a treat because they're more vocalized and people will say it sounds like Chewbacca from Star Wars when a hooded seal vocalizes. So when you get the different species, you get some other different personalities and unique characteristics for those species as well. And, and Rosemary, you're smiling. Have you encountered yeah. them as well? Oh, yeah, I've dealt with plenty. We just had a harp seal juvenile, what we call a beater, just last Thursday, uh, discovered by a police officer in Seal Harbor, on Seal Harbor Beach, very appropriately. 
he was very concerned because it was on the slipway near the road and they were absolutely marvelous shout out to them for looking out for that seal um haven't seen it like linda node we haven't seen hoodeds in a while um and i i looked up our data and i see it's exactly 10 years since we had um any reports of hoodeds that we rescued so not really seeing them around uh but certainly we get harps you always get a a dozen or so each season um some usually juveniles um but we sometimes will see the adults as well that um then you can recognize why they get their name harp seal because they have that distinguishing harp marking on the back wow but good good fun to to they're quite quite different animals from the the harbors and the grays personality wise so well we do need to take another I like harps <laughs> quick great break when we come back we'll get to more of your questions about seals in maine this is maine calling I'm Jennifer Rooks, and you are listening to Maine Calling Today. We are talking about seals in Maine. If you have a question, if you have a story you'd like to tell us about an encounter with a seal, give us a call. 1-800-399-3566. You can send, if you're quick, a brief email to talk at mainepublic.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We talked to Christina earlier about some of the work you're doing at UMaine, but there's something we haven't talked about yet, which is really interesting. You can learn a lot about a seal, I understand, by just taking a water sample. How does that work and what do you learn? Really, I think quite exciting new area of research that's taking off across the state of Maine um, that's focused on something called environmental DNA or eDNA. Yeah. This is DNA that are shed by living organisms into the environment. And so all of us basically are leaving behind a signature of our DNA in the, in the environments that we pass through for a seal that might be a skin cell or a whisker or a, a piece of fur or a fecal material that's left behind in the water. We can then come and scoop up a liter or bottle of water and filter that water down, getting the DNA on a piece of filter paper that we can then extract. And we could detect a seal in that water sample without ever having seen it in the wild. We can potentially even type that seal in terms of looking at genetic information. And you can identify not just seals, but any or a wide variety of marine species. So maybe we could learn something about um, our sharks and seals present in the same body of water or our, our uh, seals there with their prey, something about the broader marine ecosystem. So we've been piloting this down at, um, off the coast of Cape Cod, the Center for Coastal Studies, collecting bottles of water off of seal haul-out sites and getting some really interesting findings at the start of this type of research for our lab. So I understand this is early, but what have you discovered so far? Well, we are excited that we can get seal DNA out of water. That was our first moment of success. And um, then we were even more excited that we could get multiple what we call haplotypes. So these genetic types, we can identify DNA of multiple individuals in a single water sample. And we're beginning to also learn about how far away we can be um, from a seal haul-out site and still detect that seal DNA with the idea that um, we want to minimize our impact on these seals. We don't want to disturb them while we're doing research on them. So the further away we can be and still get some signal of their DNA in the water, you know, maybe the least invasive we can be while still doing research that gives us meaningful results. That's really, really interesting. Linda Dowdy, uh, we talked about the seal that was the wayward seal in Cape Elizabeth. How many seals do you have right now? And, and how many seals do you have uh, at your max? 
Well, I'm surprised you can't hear them in the background right now because the rehab center is behind this wall. But we have four uh, all young gray seals. So like the little seal that was found in the road in Cape Elizabeth, we have three other individuals of the same age class and same species. There's three males and one female and the one female is definitely out competing uh, the males in the group right now. But they're all animals that were really young and we had to um, either give them formula when they first came in or they had we started the weaning process which they would have done in the wild with their mom it's interesting to me that you have four gray seals because haven't we just been talking about the fact that there are more harbor seals many more harbor seals in maine than gray seals yeah and so we usually see great these young gray seals in the winter months they're pupping in december uh january and early february and the harbor seals since they start to disperse in the fall we don't see as many in the winter season we actually would start seeing the harp seals or hooded seals and we've had a few harp seals um, come down, but they've not needed care. So it's kind of turned into the little gray seal posse this year in our rehab center. Wow, we have a question here from Alex. I'll throw this to you, Rosemary. Alex hmm. asks, similar to what the caller was asking about how to avoid disturbing seals, does it bother them or cause any problems if people imitate their barking or vocalizations? I've seen people do that for fun to talk to them. Is that okay? Oh, they hate it. <laughs> um, it, it, it constitutes really a stressor. Uh, you really want to keep your distance and you don't want to be talking to them. I, I know people want to sing with the seals and, and so on, but really it, it's a matter of giving them their space and, and being quiet around them as well. Uh, we try and do that when we have a team go out to assess a pup or an adult seal, um, we, we, we sometimes like to talk to them, but we do do it softly, I guess. Linda, let's let's talk about interactions between people yeah. and seals. Um, you know, they're called harbor seals uh, because I think probably because people spot them in harbors and have for a very long time. Um, seals and humans have coexisted in many places in the world, including here in Maine for a very long time. How... How much does it affect, is a seal better off if it's living on a wild stretch of coast than, um, you know, Kennebunk Harbor or not really? Yeah. Do they adapt? Tell us about the interaction and what we've learned. Oh, uh, this is a tough one. I mean, we've seen a lot of more as our coastal populations have grown in human activity. That's also an area of habitat for these animals and especially young animals in the, the pupping months. So those, um, as we see more human activity on more of the, you know, islands that never were inhabited or, or such, these animals are, these interactions are happening more. And we actually had worked with Christina's, one of Christina's students at UMaine at looking at the harassment of seals and human interactions. And that's been up like 60% for us. And so that's something that we've been trying to document more, just human presence and how that kind of can, and potentially could lead to more stranded animals um, because of that interaction. And really when we're in our behavior affects their behavior and you have that repeated action every day and 
maybe every hour, depending on you've got someone that says, I'm just going to take a quick picture and then they leave the beach and then you have another person comes up and takes that quick picture. That constant interaction can actually be really stressful and um, potentially lead to those animals um, potential demise, depending on the stressor um, and increased like straining reports over time and special seasonality when we have more people on our beaches, we see more increased reports of those type of interactions. I have an e- email here from Bill. Don't want this great show to pass without mention of Maine's most famous seal, Andre, raised mm-hmm. from a pup by a Rockport fisherman, transported to Boston Aquarium, and then would swim back to Rockport. A very entertaining fellow. There's a granite statue of Andre in Rockport. And I'm glad, Bill, thank you so much for bringing up Andre. I think many people remember Andre fondly, but I'm wondering if maybe this is part of the reason people think that it's okay to take pictures of seals between Andre being clearly so human friendly and then also, you know, that seals are often a part of aquariums and will swim right up to the glass and and interact with humans. what, What would you all like to say about the fact that, you know, seals like Andre do seem to be okay with humans. Yeah, I know. So, I mean, they're charismatic animals and that, you know, we have, we have even in the world of domestic pets now that we've kind of, we, people want us to kind of have that human and animal connection. And so there's a, you know, it's hard to say, like, you know, when some people say, I think the animal knew what I was saying or knew what I was doing. And, mm-hmm. and I, you, you want people to be able to value and respect that animal and what it uh, means to its its life. And I think it's always one of those things like Andre kind of brought to light that, you know, a harbor seal in Maine and, and what it can do and just the fact that it can make the rounds and, and do what it wants to do. I always say like some of these personalities of animals that come into our rehab center, they dictate our daily <laughs> and daily trying to help them back to life. But they, you know, it, it really is individualized when it comes to like scenarios like that. Christina, how smart are seals? Do we know? Oh, um, you know that, mm-hmm. I, I don't know from a science perspective, I get the sense that they are quite intelligent. Marine mammals across the board are are fairly intelligent animals um, compared to other um, marine vertebrates and fishes, but but I don't have a scientifically grounded answer there, just a gut feeling that I think they are, are, are quite intelligent creatures. Okay, um, Linda, um... I understand that south of here, there are not marine rescue organizations. So you are doing rescues from New Hampshire and parts of Massachusetts. No, we cover Kittery Kittery to Rockland, Maine. It's our rehabilitation center that are not as few and far between. Like there's, we're the only ones for um, doing long-term care in Maine. And then there's a few other organizations, one in Massachusetts and one in Connecticut, but with, uh, you know, the COVID and everything that's really cut down on resources over time. And so capacity is kind of dwindled for seal rehabilitation in the Northeast region. Okay. We'll go to Scarborough and AMK. Hi, AMK, go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. And I'm not trying to be controversial, but I think it deserves a mention. How do you think the culture of this 
the seal saving and, and rescuing and tagging would look if somehow it negatively impacted the lobster industry. Because, you know, you hear stories about all the controversy going on with the whales, trying to preserve the whales and the lobster industry, but, you know, if, if somehow this involvement with the seal population involved the lobster industry, do you think it would still look the same? AMK, thanks for your question. But Linda, you said your, your husband's a fisherman. <laughs> my other I've actually worked in lobster boats um, for many years myself and have my lobster license as well. Um, and it's one of those other passions I have is, you know, marine mammals and lobsters have always been my two loves. And so looking at that is like there's been not a lot of data set on seal distribution. So that's why we kind of increased our efforts into seal tagging projects so that we could bring to light a little bit more because people will ask, where do they go? What do they do? And that was just some things we didn't have answers for. AMK, thanks for, for calling in with your question. I wanna ask each of you, we just have a few minutes left to see if you can share with our listeners something that maybe people didn't know. And Rosemary, I'm gonna put you on the spot first. Tell us something people might not know about seals that um, is one of your your favorite facts about them. Oh, there's so many. Um, I think certainly behaviorally, but also physiologically, um, just the idea that these animals can dive quite deep, especially, and these aren't from the Gulf of Maine, but Southern elephant seals can dive to almost two miles down and stay down for a couple of hours. Um, our seals in the Gulf of Maine, uh, less dramatic, but st certainly staying down maybe 15 minutes or so and going to some uh, depths that certainly would put us to shame. Um, and also I, the, the idea that they breathe out, instead of taking a breath, they'll breathe out to get rid of that air so they're not so buoyant uh, to go on a dive. Um, I love that harbor seal whiskers allow them to track fish, the wakes of fish, which I find fascinating. Um, so when we do necropsies, um, we do it with um, just such a great interest in mind on all these uh, physiological processes. So um, those are some of mine. Anyway, I could go on and on. <laughs> Christina, what about you? Top that. <laughs> I was worried Rosemary was going to steal mine as she started talking about physiology. So I'll just put one more in there for the record holder, rector holder nature of seals. The, the fact that boggles my mind is hooded seals um, hold the record for the shortest lactation period of any mammal. So they nurse their pups for only four days. And then those pups are left to forage on their own. Um, and, you know, gray and harbor seals are not too far behind in terms of we're talking weeks and and then those pups are on their own and compare that to a to a human where our lactation periods. So we're talking about how long we nurse our offspring can be can be far extended beyond that. Um, just the amazing capacity of these animals to survive a hooded seal born into the Arctic after just four days is, you know, that pups on its own and it's taken control of its life. It's quite impressive. Linda, your turn. <laughs> um, after going through two unusual mortality events for seal strainings, I'm amazed about what these animals put up with in their environment and deal with in their environment when these uh, um, outbreaks kind of go through and how much these animals actually do handle before succumbing to them. Mm. Uh, you know, it occurs to me, just as you're saying that, Linda, that we talked about um, avian flu and other diseases that seals can get. 
what about uh we're seeing more and more shark attacks um do you are you seeing more animals that have been injured by sharks or is that they don't really come to you injured because they've been um killed and and do you foresee that being an increasing problem in maine and i'm not sure problem's the right word an, an increasing reality right so i mean we get that question a lot now but i think there's also more effort being looked into for that shark uh distribution and changes so there's a a lot more studies going in. So right now it's, I mean, we've been documenting shark predation cases on seals for over a decade now. So for us, it's also the more effort that's put out there, there's more increased reporting. So whether people know more to, about reporting, both on the seal stranding front and the shark front, I think that's um, hard to kind of say right now, but there's a lot more effort being put towards tagging sharks in the Gulf of Maine and those um, distributions. So, And Christina, what about ship strikes? I know that's such a big issue with the whale population. Are seals also um, become victims to ship strikes? So I think you heard, uh, we heard our caller earlier talk about um, the first seal that he responded to had propeller wounds. And so that's, I think, what we see for these seals are, are wounds from things like propellers when they interact with boats, um, which looks a little bit different than a you know traumatic ship strike that you might see for a large whale. You also see evidence of interactions with fisheries in terms of being bicaught in gear or, or um, animals coming in with, with hooks or fishing line entanglement. Mm -hmm. So in terms of a propeller injury or something like that, seals don't have sort of a sixth sense about what to stay away from, to stay away from a propeller. I mean, my guess is that they do, but but the boats are moving faster than, than they can or they're caught by surprise. Um, you know, because we don't see those events happen in the wild, we just see the aftermath. I don't know that we can fully understand how that interaction occurs, but I, again, going back to, I think these seals are smart enough to avoid a boat if they can. Gotcha. And finally, I know, um, and I'll turn to you, Rosemary, but Linda, you could answer this as well. So many people love seals. I'm sure you have people approaching you who want to be able to volunteer with your organization. Is that possible? Um, do you accept volunteers and what do they need to know? Oh, yeah, we love volunteers. In fact, I often find that when I've had someone report a SEAL to us, they get really interested. And uh, we I always invite them when we're doing a training workshop. In fact, we just did our winter one a few weeks ago. Um, but they can get in, in touch with me at Allied Whale. Uh, if you are Rockland up to the Canadian border, and even if you're in my home of Canada, well... <laughs> Sure, why not? Um, but uh, yeah, we love to have volunteers, uh, especially in the more remote spots of our coast. Uh, but uh, anyone is welcome. Uh, Great. We love to have them on board. Great. We're almost out of time. But Linda, you can just say yes or no. Also, volunteers help you out. Yes, and go to our website. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you all for joining us today. Linda Dowdy, a marine scientist and founding executive director of Marine Mammals of Maine. Christine Kamen, an assistant professor in the School of Marine Sciences at UMaine. And Romary, Rosemary Seaton, Marine Mammal Stranding Coordinator with the Allied Whale Marine Research Program at the College of the Atlantic. Today's sound engineer, Keiji Akimaladun, Jonathan Smith, and Cindy Hanna are our producers. This is Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.